Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked. A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. And today we are joined by Alex Taylor, the Global Head of Emerging Technology at QBE Ventures. Alex, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. We're very excited to have you. Um, Do you mind starting off by telling everyone what the Global Head of Emerging Technology does? That's a, that's a very good question, and it's one that I'm on a, on a lifelong journey to discover myself. But uh, <laughs> it's it's one of those roles where you know it's it's somewhat ephemeral, but you know people in a role like mine come from a, a lifelong career in technology, and I I am a passionate technologist. You know that means that I've had a series of startups. I've always had some kind of technology role in development or architecture or even technology communications. But in ventures. It means that I translate all of the skills that I've built up over my career into looking at the companies that QBE might want to have a stake in. And that means that I sit down and I I evaluate, you know, is this company real? Do they do what they say they do? Are they going to grow? Do we have opportunity to grow alongside them? And that might sound simple. It's in fact extremely complex, Uh, but it translates to, we hope, the mutual success of both QBE and also the companies that we choose to partner and invest in. So what's the day-to-day look like in this role, if there is such a thing? There's a, there's a lot of deal scouting, as you might imagine, but there's a lot of research and discussion. So I've always said that our job in, in ventures, in insurance, is to look at where the industry might be in five to 10 years and invest our capital to be aligned with that. And I think, as we all know, insurance is, is renowned for its conservatism, particularly in technology. That means that that job used to be simpler than it is now. It meant that we could say that there's going to be dramatic change in geospatial or, or in systems maturity or in process maturity. And here's 10 companies that might be able to do that. You know, And I'm quite openly saying now that it's become a lot more difficult to do what we do, particularly because of the advent of, of modern AI, particularly generative AI. It's meant that that horizon that we could see over has got a lot closer. Now, I don't know that I could see where the industry or, in fact, the world's going to be in, in two years. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you literally that question. Like, you want to <laughs> stay having a puck and then... I don't know. There's a giant rift in the ice. Um, But this has happened before. There was an AI hype cycle, you know, five to seven years ago. And then, of course, there was the blockchain hype cycle. So these industries have been through these things. Are there any any words of wisdom that you can share having weathered a few of these? You know, it's it's interesting. Of course, uh, I, I founded a blockchain company in 2012. Uh, I exited it in 2019. So, you know, maybe that's one credit up on the scoreboard there. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we got in super early in, in that particular space. But you know, I, I like to think to what I said before that that sometimes I can see over the horizon a little bit. But what I think is different about this generation of of machine learning and AI. And to your point, obviously, we have had AI and ML for quite some time. We have been through a hype cycle in this space before. You know, we're in another one again. What I would encourage people to look at very closely is what's different about this particular time. And our hypothesis in this 
is in generalized models. And that's what's different. If you look at 10 years ago, you know, clearly we had computer vision, we had language analysis, we had you know, various models that could optimize for classification and other things. What we didn't have is models that could be arbitrarily instructed, instructed to perform different tasks equally well with the same foundation model. And the, the translation of that is that what we're seeing in this generation is a capability much closer to what I would describe as, as human-like intellect. Now, not, not human intellect, and I'm not calling AGI just yet, even though some in the industry are, but what we're seeing is the fact that we've got this, uh, this emergence of capability where something can equally well look at a, a picture of a damaged roof uh, on, a, on a house, uh, analyze a claim description, look for discrepancies, and you know interact with the customer at the same time. And it's that democratizing capability, the fact that people can access these models despite not being machine learning engineers, that makes this fundamentally different. Suddenly, the best-in-class people to, to use these models are not developers, they're underwriters or claims adjusters or people working in finance. And I don't think that's ever happened before. And it's the, the archetypical engagement with these models that I think is is going to define why this is fundamentally different. And frankly, I don't know that we have hit peak hype yet, but at the same time, we're already seeing a lot more consumption of the capability than we have in, in other hype cycles. I mean, blockchain is the perfect example, of course, because we, you, you almost had to prescribe to people that they had to use that technology. There was no pull, really, with AI, what we're seeing now. You know, 30% of organizations in, in many cases in, in discussions I've had in insurance, people are actively using chat GBT or an equivalent on a daily basis. And that's because they see value. Alex, yeah, um, yeah, oh, sorry, Chris. I was take a step back for a second. So in, in our world, in the VC world, right, a, a big part of um, maybe I'll call it the, the before Gen AI and the after Gen AI uh, realities is when when you're diligencing or you're you're talking to these these startup companies and these vendors a, a, a big component of of the review of them is their technological ip right mm -hmm. what are they bringing to the table that's so unique that it's got a moat around it that no one else can build it that's what will make it sticky in the organization this is what makes it easy to decide but um, is, is a point in the bucket for them of it makes sense to invest in you, right? There, there's long-term there. Fast forward to now where Gen AI kind of, not every business model in every company, but in those companies that are using some type of AI, this generative AI is kind of table stakes now, right? And so it, it makes it so that it's accessible to everyone, to your point, but it also makes it more difficult to identify um, what's the differentiator. And then I think, what really is a differentiator is the from an insurance carrier perspective, the data that you can bring that's your own, IP, the carrier's IP, right? But there are tons of questions about data integrity, data protections. How do, how do you think the, the, the landscape, the, the partnerships with carriers, how does Gen AI change, um, one, how carriers are looking to partner with these companies, but two, how they're concerned, they're maybe changing how they need to think mm -hmm. about their data and their protections. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll sort of go back to the beginning of what you asked. And you're absolutely right. I think for the last 10 years, a lot of companies have said, you know, we're using AI to do X or Y or Z. And a lot of the time, the biggest challenge we had in VC was 
validating that statement? Are they actually using some form of AI or is it just, you know, a marketing term? Is it algorithmic? Is it is it classical? Uh, that was a relatively easy task after a while. Uh, once you understood the right questions to ask, and, you know, I, I got to the bottom of those things quite quickly. To your point, what we've seen now is that suddenly everybody can actually use AI, not, not originate AI, but use it. And that, that makes it really challenging because everybody suddenly is doing whatever they were doing six months ago with AI. And that was easy to bolt onto the top because these models are very, very accessible. It's a hobby of mine at the moment, in fact, to use the Wayback Machine, Archive.org, to look at any company that says they're using AI and see what they did 12 months ago. Because that's what they actually do. Now, suddenly, of course, you know we're at peak hype, so they're doing that plus Gen AI, which is fine. And people should be doing that and exploring that. But it doesn't necessarily mean they have a protectable moat, to your point. And that's how I do my sort of moat discovery of, of looking at, are you just consuming GPT-4 or, you know, Claude? Or, you know, are you running up a Llama model that you very, you know, moderately migrated to be something that you've created? That tends to mean that in some cases you don't have a moat. In some cases through partnerships you might. And to your point, it revolves around the data you have access to. And this is a really interesting trend right now. Now, having been in the, the insurance industry for, for a while now, we've always talked about using our data as our protectable asset that we might be able to, to use either first party or with, a, with another organization to train and refine a model to perform better than what's in the rest of the industry. Now, that used to be really hard. It used to be something that we talked about doing or in some cases didn't want another company to do and put legal protections around. Now, suddenly, it's dramatically easier. And you've got you know entire communities of people on Reddit who spend their day refining models. You know, and it is trivially easy. Teenagers are doing it now. It's it's fantastic. And we are in this, this brave new age of AI. The, the ramifications of that, though, for organizations are that they either have to get serious about using their data and protecting their data, particularly in partnerships, but to pay very close attention to what the legal agreement is between them and the organizations that might come into possession of their data. And I think we've seen a lot of the lawsuits and, uh, in fact, the um, the uh, copyright protections guaranteed by Microsoft and now OpenAI saying that, you know, if you get sued for using somebody else's data, we will indemnify you. Uh, the reverse is also true. You see a lot of insurers starting to very carefully test the waters on what happens if we create a fine-tuned version of GPT-4 or what happens if we buy a company training Llama models to do X or Y or Z. I think that we're going to see a lot of this and in the next two to three years, we're going to see a lot of, uh, let's call it a digital twin of insurance processes run by machines that are replicas of the way that it's done classically by humans inside an insurer. So, you know, to use a QBE example, and you know, not that we're doing this yet, but, you know, if, if a QBE underwriting process in London for commercial property had that secret source, and we like to think that it does, we're going to start seeing the evolution of machines doing that without human involvement or with limited human involvement, but dramatically faster and cheaper. And the countersign to that is that companies that choose not to do that might find themselves getting left in the dust. And that's the risk here. Uh, versus the reward. You know, if you choose not to do it, and I, I've been saying this a lot recently, choosing not to participate in this AI generation means that you're exposed to others that do, and then that's what we need to pay attention to. Yeah, I, that's very interesting. You, talking about the moat and then talking about the risk. 
going back to something you said earlier, it's it's not that there weren't models you couldn't fine tune for purpose, right? Bert, you could fine tune, but sure. you had to be able to write TensorFlow or PyTorch code. And there was a built-in mechanism for safety there, which is you had to really understand what these models did. You probably had some background in statistics so you could understand when a model's performing correctly and when it's going to behave out of distribution or not. With ChatGPT, you just type things in or upload a picture and stuff comes out and uh, <laughs> it feels like it's doing your job, you're happy, and otherwise you're not. So I, so as I'm thinking about some of the really critical core business processes in the insurance industry, like underwriting or claims processing, that that scares the bejesus out of me thinking about people just sort of willy-nilly letting these things do their jobs and mm. people that are gen ai experts but not ml experts making the decision to push something to production or not is a really scary prospect to me it, it really is and look i think everybody's doing early experiments in this space to their credit regulatory bodies around the world have started to ask the right questions and they're all asking the same questions and that is fundamentally who has oversight over what's being done? How are you ensuring that protected classes are being protected? And where's the evidence for that? I think that we're going to see over the next 18 months a lot of bolt rattling and, and a few mistakes from companies that you know will be very public on you know hallucinatory effects from generative AI models, from companies that think they've seized on something that's amazing but just falls short of the mark for a variety of reasons. There's sort of two categories that I've been putting things in in this space recently. One of those is extractative, and this is broadly, you know, retrieval augmented generation, as it's called, people looking at very long documents. This is common in underwriting and insurance, of course, where, you know, you might get a submission that has 250 pages, and you might want 30 questions answered broadly to say, can I underwrite this uh, according to my underwriting guidelines? If so, why can I point to the evidence of what it says in the underwriting guidelines themselves? And furthermore, what decision should I be making? Now, is this a bind? Is it a decline? Should I refer to a senior underwriter and why? Yep. I think that as long as appropriate oversight is made in this process to make sure that a human's responsible for saying, essentially checking it's working and saying, yes, you know, this is in the source documentation. I can see it highlighted on page seven by the model. And here's the reference to the underwriting guidelines saying, you know, you can't underwrite this risk or you can underwrite this risk. As long as that's being done diligently, then I think that that will limit the exposure to error. The second that people go over the precipice of entirely automated decision-making, you know, I think that we'll get to the point where that can be done. But at the moment, I think that that's a, a step too far on risk for a very conservative industry. Uh, there's a lot of promise, uh, a lot of promise. But I tend to think that we need to be conservative here. And I'm not a conservative guy, purely because of the exposure and the risk of being wrong. Yeah, I think it's a step too far. And it's also an unnecessary step. To, to me, because at the moment, you know, the pressure on staffing and uh, underwriting office or, you know, throughput to bind more business, the acceleration you can get uh, from a well-architected AI plus human workflow um, is enough, I think. I, I've heard that repeatedly. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, oh, sorry, Alex. I was, I was going to say, um, taking it away from underwriting for a second onto the claim side, what, what we've heard a lot is AI would be great for um, 
you know, automating some of those internal operations. So I'm, I'm the claim adjuster, I'm in the service center and I'm answering calls. And so if I need to look something up or identify information really quickly, I can use, you know, a chat GPT or, or generative AI to get that answer for me. But um, we are a long time away from allowing AI to be the interface with our customer, because at the end of the day, that is where you most typically an insurance carrier is interacting with the customer. So um, Chris, to your point, that human plus AI, just from what my understanding is of the appetite and just the, the claims lane um, is that it's never going to be a full AI process end to end. But Alex, welcome your thoughts on on that and what you're what you're seeing in that vein. To Chris's point, I don't think it needs to be fully automated at the moment. We don't need to directly expose these things to customers, but there's a lot of very interesting things happening in, in broadly what are being referred to as co-pilots now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, thank, thank you, Microsoft, for calling everything co-pilot. Um, we're, we're seeing an evolution in different products and claims of helping uh, people doing customer servicing to align to typified responses to customers. I saw a very interesting example, I think it was from KPMG recently, in looking at helping claim staff, uh, this is this is gonna sound strange, uh, appropriately emotively respond to workers' compensation claimants to make sure that you know they they exhibit both a a, a correct response to to what's taken place to the customer who might have been terribly injured, but also you know keep it on track to make sure that the claim is appropriately dealt with and you know making sure that they understand what the next best action is should be something has typically been something that a, that a human being is solely responsible for, but homogenizing responses for for better or for worse is something that these systems are quite good at doing and analyzing in real time. And you know, one thing that we often don't think about in, in claims processes is that where you're directly interacting with a human being, you're under quite a lot of pressure. So making sure that you've got a, a backup, as it were, you know, a, a non-human entity, dare I say, to make sure that you know you're following corporate process, that you're mm -hmm. responding in an appropriate way, that you know what you're saying is in line with corporate procedure is something that reassures people quite a lot. But I mean, looking at more objective products, I mean, there's some fantastic examples I've seen recently in accelerating claims processes on claim adjusting. I mean, look at look at catastrophic events in the eastern seaboard of the United States. A hurricane comes through, 50,000 properties are damaged. You know, which ones do we need to prioritize to make sure that our customers are looked after if their roof has been blown off? This is something that a year ago was was really, really expensive, and, and rightly so. You know, rooftop analysis for damage when you got access to gray sky imagery used to cost five to ten dollars a roof. Now, with the advent of, of multimodal models, we can look at a description of claim and text, a picture of the before and after of a roof, and a system can tell us who are the most impacted customers within minutes. And it's it's profound. Because not only is it dramatically faster and can take inputs of multiple forms, but also it's dramatically cheaper. You know, we've gone from $5 to less than a cent per rooftop. And I think this is going to be the biggest driver of change. It's a combination of accuracy and capability, speed and reduction in cost. In, in many cases, that first phase being done entirely without human input. Obviously, there's a review phase. But getting to that point of value much more quickly means that the way that claims will be dealt with will be fundamentally different. No longer do you have an adjuster walking around with a clipboard in a disaster area. Now you can do a lot of this as a desktop exercise. Well, I was I was going to make a snippy comment about, um, I don't know if the claims adjusters would like that or not, really. 
depends on where that goes. Our experience has been that they do, interestingly. So there's obviously two responses that we're seeing inside the industry at the moment, inside all industries. One of those is visceral. It's, you know, that that's my job and the machine's just done it faster and cheaper than I do and, you know, and, and it does it 24 hours a day. The other side is people thinking, what can I do now that that part of my job that used to be complex and time-consuming can be done for me and I can focus my human skills on doing the thing that the machine can't do yet? And I say yet, obviously, you know, this is a, a moving timeline and, you know, machines become more capable every day. And that's scaring everybody a little bit. But at the same time, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for growth. You know, if we can serve customers better, if we can bind policies more accurately, if we can create better products as a result of having more human interaction with customers in meaningful ways, that that's a win, I think. And a lot of people across all parts of the insurance value chain are starting to say, hey, you know, that does take a long time to do, you know, a read through of a submission document, or it does take a long time to read through someone's claims history uh, in order to understand what's taking place here. What can we do now that we couldn't do before as a result of that drudgery being taken away? And I think that's really healthy. Uh, you know, clearly we have to keep reevaluating this, but there is a lot of opportunity here to realize, you know, what do humans have as innate skills that machines might not ever have and and how can we take advantage of that to start creating new products and services and extensions to existing ones that make our customers feel more valued more serviced particularly in 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 a light of a changing world of more risk you know more catastrophic weather risk more cyber risk you know more people risk so a lot of things that are changing frankly i think that this age of AI might deliver us from part of the burden we'd otherwise have uh, because of the increase in risk. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of what you just mentioned, right? That new products, new capabilities for for individuals within within their roles. Um, you know, different mechanisms of of communicating with customers or distributing products to customers. Side of of the required to get. Right. There's years and years of um, technological investment, whether that be third-party data vendors or providers, other you know I'll call startups or innovative companies that have been brought in and, and often pieced together to to supplement and help that person com complete their role. Um, when you think about all of that and the workflows that have been built, generative AI or can come in and, and support that. But do you think? Because you can query on it, because you can ask any question of this, you know, large database that a lot of that becomes just legacy technology debt, that there's no place for that? Or um, is that always going to be the, the ground truth? And then AI is just really helping to automate the process around it. it it's a really interesting question. And I think the last 48 hours have started to emphasize to some people what might be coming over the next two years. And if you look at what OpenAI has announced in, in what they're calling GPTs, uh, what the rest of the world calls agents, you know, my hypothesis in this space is that we're starting to see 
generative, generative AI systems become tool users. Much as humanity became tool users you know, a few hundred thousand years ago, what we're seeing is that the models themselves can tie together disparate capabilities that previously relied on swivel chair operations, as we call them, uh, to, to create an output, a, a workflow, effectively. And it's this combination of, of generative AI in charge of a workflow for previously disconnected processes that I think will deliver the most value. And if you look at companies that have been operating in this space in insurance and banking for quite some time, so you know, Pega, UiPath are examples, you know, we're starting to see this generation of, of AI-focused companies. Uh, Sixfold is a recent example. Um, Cytora is one that you know, we happen to have invested in that are starting to realize that all of these things that makes insurance and banking inefficient. You no, know, you've got a mainframe from 1975. You've got a, a paper-based system where you have to scan documents in and extract fields. You know, you've got a, a human process where somebody's got a transcript of a call. You can tie all of these things together and not necessarily have to define specifically how it's going to work. Just give the task itself to a machine with a, a vaguely defined output of what needs to take place and, and find that it will happen. So I think that over the next couple of years, we're going to see uh, let's call it collaborative interaction between uh, generative AI agents that are given one task as a cog in the machine that work collaboratively, much like a human team does, to produce an outcome. And, and this is a huge area of growth. We're going to see tremendous capability evolve here. The risks obviously still have to be taken account of, but that's the biggest opportunity to grow. I think one of the one of the major obstacles to getting there is you know, you talked about UiPath, they have a platform that you can use to sort of orchestrate and integrate. That doesn't exist yet. Um, and maybe it exists if you can stay narrow, and you're entirely within the open AI ecosystem, or, you know, anthropic ecosystem, or whatever it is. But eventually, people are going to need to mix and match these models and agents and different models have different capabilities. And right now, even just at the level of wrapping the various APIs like Langchain, Light LLM, it's a gigantic tangle and mess. Um, so what do you what are you seeing emerging in terms of like the sort of uh I don't know, call it the, you know, the the platform that everything can get plugged into, like the rack that everything gets hooked together in. Yeah. Uh, the Swiss Army knife of integration. Um, yeah. It's, it's an interesting space, and there's multiple components here, of course. So one of those, and it sounds super unsexy, it's MLOps, right? MLOps is you know, very important now because being able to do regression testing on components of a task or a workflow to make sure that it, it is performing, you, know, you can be regulatory defensible in terms of what's taking place. I, I've said this for a while now. I think that we're going to start seeing regulatory bodies being prescriptive with tasks as to how a machine has to perform in certain scenarios to be certified for use in production. And you know, this is this is something that you know has actually happened in in cinema previously. If you look at Blade Runner as an example, some uh, some people might be familiar with Blade Runner. You know, putting hypothetical situations to a machine and expecting a certain output to classify it in a certain way. This is going to happen. Uh, in fact, it's already starting to happen in vehicular automation. You now you uh, you see the trolley problem in in self-driving cars. You know what would a machine do if it if it's driving down a road and somebody jumps out in front of it? 
making sure that a release of software performs uh, you know, in a predictable way, not necessarily an identical way for each scenario, but to make sure that you know, protected classes of people, you know, certain types of operations are done consistently. This is something that has to happen from an individual component perspective. But then when you tie all of these things together, the, the thing that our industry isn't prepared for yet, uh, I don't think any industry is prepared for, is, is what actually takes place when you get these combined effects, when you get these systems that work together for a goal. Uh, can, you, can you ultimately, and this is a, a big question, uh, can you get a machine or do you want a machine to be responsible for its own decisions? Certainly under you know, most Western legal jurisdictions, a human has to have oversight. You know, a human being has ultimate responsibility for actions taking place as part of a portfolio they operate. Is that going to shift? Are we going to say that because this machine was certified, you know, my, my responsibility has been you know, offloaded onto, uh, onto you know, the regulator that said that was okay? Or are we going to see humans in a loop being the the ultimate uh, decision maker, the arbitrator, you know, the responsible party for things that take place. But then, you know, looking at a, a process perspective, are we going to see this evolution from statically defined workflows, you know, uh, screen scraping a mainframe, bringing in unstructured documents, uh, text from OCR uh, to perform a particular task that's you know very tightly defined as to you know this character at this location on the screen that says this, meaning that you do this next. Or are we going to start seeing machines making intelligent decisions as to what something means at each stage, acting much more human-like and performing a task even where there is some uh, some wiggle room, some some indecisiveness in terms of what the actual input is and what the output should be? Uh, these are all questions that we have to answer. I certainly don't have the answer now, but I know that in order to use this technology, we're going to have to be able to answer these questions. Yeah, it's interesting. Humans have relied on machines for automation for a long time. And it used to be that, you know, if your machine in the factory breaks down, you just decommission it or replace a part. But one of the challenges here is that, uh, you know, OpenAI owns the means of production. Um, and that that's a big weakness, I think, of this framework. It is. And, you know, it's really interesting when you dig down into the weeds of the community that uh, is, is running and refining and fine-tuning open source models. Uh, and, you know, there's some really fascinating individuals involved in this. The reason that a lot of people uh, are doing this is exactly what you say. You know, it's, <laughs> dare I say it, you know, not wanting to have the means of production wrested from their control. If the means of production is, in fact, access to intelligence, machine intelligence specifically, you know, we're seeing this for this race and comparative frameworks to look at the performance of GPT 3.5 or Claude or GPT 4 and now GPT 4 Turbo compared to, to Llama 2, you know, Llama 3, which is coming sometime towards the end of winter, according to Meta. You know, we're seeing this sort of arms race between, uh, you know, obviously incredibly capable models, uh, you know, even though GPT 4 is rumored not to be a model, but a system of experts, as they call it, you know, six or seven 200 billion parameter models versus quantized models that can run on a, on a desktop GPU. And the fact that they're neck and neck, I think, is very fascinating because it might mean that OpenAI doesn't have a protectable moat. And, you know, there's a famous essay that was allegedly leaked from Google about six months ago now that, you know, that said, you know, OpenAI doesn't have a protectable moat and neither do we. 
I hope, frankly, that that might be true, because if we centralize these capabilities entirely to the behemoths of industry, to your point, suddenly everybody is entirely reliant on you know a very large single point of failure organization that might change fundamentally in behavior and remove your ability to participate, and that's that's dangerous. I'm just going to take a pause there. I need to go buy a bunch of Nvidia stock. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, luckily for me, I did uh, eight years ago now. But uh, yes, uh, my my second most successful investment after Bitcoin. I'll never do another Bitcoin. When we uh, when we got into Bitcoin, it was fifty two dollars. Amazing. Can I also just say how angry I am that we have twenty five Marvel movies and only two Blade Runner movies? That is an absolute crime. They they did do a good job with the uh, the remake, though. I I was impressed. They could have destroyed it, but. Of all of the things in that class, I think they did moderately well. All right, back to real life here. Back into, uh, I was going <laughs> to say, Alex is previewing like a Terminator movie, like the machines take <laughs> over the world in you know five to ten years. Um, but as you were were outlining all of that, I just kept going back to the biggest challenge historically. One of the biggest challenges historically in the insurance industry is uh, that information because of all the legacy and technology debt is siloed right you, you've pieced together these systems even with with uh you know these transformation initiatives um you still have have a lot of that right because you can't fully shut something off even when you turn something on everything's locked into unstructured documents it's filed somewhere you haven't touched it you don't even know where it is half the time right and isn't that that still that infrastructure challenge still needs to be solved in order for any of this to really amount to anything than a quick band-aid that fixes mm-hmm. one part of the process but doesn't actually get to the crux of what you're really trying to solve for which is data-driven insights based on your you the carriers expertise risk appetite and performance um potentially but but also maybe not so the interesting thing i think that we're seeing now because of the way that, you know, and, and this is going to sound dismissive, that, that generative AI can solve most technical problems, at least to a certain extent, I suspect that we might actually see legacy systems remaining longer than they otherwise would. Because yeah. if you create a, a generative AI interface to say, bringing in unstructured information from a mainframe, you know, which is actually a use case that I've seen done in the industry, then you might forget about that legacy and the complexity purely because you can treat it as a solved problem. You've got a modern interface to that to bring it to somewhere else. Uh, you know, you kick the can down the road as a result uh, and focus on the new and shiny thing. Uh, undoubtedly, though, we do need to solve the problem of legacy. Now, I've been involved with uh, with several major insurance companies that have mainframes that predate the moon landing. That's that's a problem, and that's something that needs to be solved. But the the challenge that we've always had as an industry is that the the figures quoted to move away from these systems are eye watering. Uh, you know, my my former employer, we spent six hundred and fifty million dollars migrating away from our legacy platforms. We went through four different CIOs just to achieve that, and you know, that seems obscene until you look at the the complexity of doing that in a highly regulated environment. Uh, having said that, I hope that the opportunity in AI and Gen AI might be the impetus that we need as an industry to say, you know, yes, that does cost a lot of money, 
But in order to have access to certain components of what we need to do here, we need to modernize our systems. We need to, to turn off the legacy. I mean, a, a classic example at the moment that we use in this space is, is geospatial data. So, you know, geospatial data is complex, it's, it's large, it involves you know, radar imagery from space, it involves photographs. If you're dealing with a mainframe that is purely text and can't save images against a claim, it can't save, uh, you know, uh, geospatial polygons against, uh, you know, the outline of a property, then you know, you're suddenly off on an island where everybody else might be able to take advantage of these new toys, but you're stuck in 1975 where you can't. And that's a very conducive argument to boards to say, you know, if you don't do this, you have an existential threat on your hands, and we can't do this now because we have to get rid of these systems. That's starting to fall on ears that are slightly less deaf, but, uh, you know, there's still a long way to go. It's not easy to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and certainly getting a sign-off to do it is a thing that shareholders think about very carefully. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the tech, and you just scratched a bit of the surface of uh, sort of the change management problem that always comes with these things. So, you know, there, any automation you do, you're changing people's jobs. There's work to do at the human level. I think that just sort of gets exacerbated by these new technologies that we've been talking about. What are you seeing out there? So there's multiple ways to look at that. I think there is a, a dramatic need for people change management as a result of what we're seeing in, in this generation of AI. I've, I've been keeping my finger very much on the pulse of this particular question, having discussions with people who might be the most impacted as a result of what we're seeing in, in automation, not just at the task level, but at the program level. Now, there's a lot of skill sets that we're seeing, not just in insurance, but more broadly, starting to look like they could be entirely automated. There's a great example, I don't know if you've seen it, in a company called Heygen, H-E-Y-G-E-N, uh, -E -E that, uh, that has effectively made the, uh, the film dubbing industry obsolete overnight. You can effectively record a, a video of anybody and then translate the, uh, the words that they say into any other language, including synchronizing their mouth motions. Uh, you know, we're going to start seeing these uh, these incredible progressions of things where people wake up in the morning and suddenly an entire industry might have been replaced. That does have a profound effect psychologically on people. Even if that's not your job that was replaced, people are smart enough to say, hey, you know, that could happen to me or that could happen to part of what I do now. Uh, what I think is is fascinating is twofold here. One is that people are not responding to this with... Uh, a disengaged fear. People are actually using this technology, understanding this technology. I think that they're thankful that they can engage even if they're not a technologist. That means that the pull from people, even if they're watching machine do what they do, they're experimenting with it. They're learning it. I've seen people that perform tasks that it's very likely machines will be able to do completely themselves in two to three years, teaching themselves uh, themselves the prompt engineering skills required to get that kind of capability out of the machine itself. Having said that, you know, we do have both a macroeconomic challenge here and also an internal challenge. You know, macroeconomically, you know, we have to understand what the impact might be on unemployment. Uh, and that's certainly something that I'm not sure that, you know, modern Western capitalistic systems are entirely ready for purely because of the speed of change, but inter-organizationally as well, we have to start understanding what we need to do in skills maturation, in, in upskilling people to take advantage of the systems we're putting in front of people. 
Because in the end, you can't just drop uh, a machine learning system, a generative AI system in front of a team. That has to be built into their processes. And people have to start understanding that they need to treat a machine less like a machine and maybe a bit more like a human being. And that's a profound step. Now, previously, we treated uh, automation, robotic process automation specifically, as a, a tool that performed a function. Now it's something that, that might be a bit more collaborative rather than instructive. I think, Alex, you hit on an interesting point there where the capabilities and the functionality of Gen, Gen AI and how the, the non-technical people can use it, I think has removed some of that traditional friction of an insurance carrier, the, the business owner, the business unit participant and the innovation group. And right, we have this new technology that we can bring in. It'll make your job easier. You'll be able to do X, Y, Z. And it's like, no, no, like I want to keep my job. I don't understand the technological that's all a technological solution to what I'm looking at. This this seems to remove some of that because everyone can see the benefit of it because they're they're living it immediately once they start leveraging that those capabilities. It, it absolutely does. So we did an experiment in uh, in Hong Kong in May this year, where we sat down with a team of underwriters that had, you know, no no technology skill really, certainly not any programming skill at all. Uh, there were a bunch of marine cargo underwriters, you know, very, very good at their jobs, exceptionally well-performing portfolio for QBE. Uh, and we said to them, you know, today you're going to use generative AI, uh, GPT-4, in order to optimize and accelerate parts of the work that you do. And it was it was quite funny initially because the first reaction from them was, I have no idea what you just said, and that's ridiculous. I'm certainly not going to be doing that because that's insane. And I said, no, it's fine. Sit down. And what we're going to start with is describing your job to the machine. And, you know, obviously we had to get a bit of prompt engineering skill into the head. You know, they came up with as a marine cargo underwriter at QBE. You know, I look at it, insurance submissions and I consider the vessel, the qualifications of the crew, uh, the things on the ship that we're insuring, the route the ship's taking, you know, all of these things that they do. And then we showed them with some fabricated marine cargo submissions that we'd made that all of the things that they asked that took up to several days sometimes to perform uh, could be done entirely automatically just by injecting the submission along with the initial prompt into the system. And their response to that was not fear or confusion, but genuine collaboration. You know, this, this consciousness expanding point where suddenly they realized that a machine was not something that was to be feared or, or that even was scary, but was tremendously useful and that they could create capability in from scratch. Because previously, these teams had to spend months to years going and creating specific systems alongside solution architects and software engineers to perform a particular function to the point where most of the time they didn't even bother. Now, they could sit down in front of a terminal and, and in some cases do it for themselves or at least start to do it for themselves and when they realize that, we get this shift from technical users being the primary consumers of machine learning to business users actually having the highest point of value. And that's profound. I, how, do, how does the next generation of underwriters learn underwriting in this world that we are entering? It's a really interesting question. Um, I think we're going to start seeing this dividing line, which is a moving line, between what humans are better at, at least now, and what machines are better at. Clearly, a lot of the 
the time-consuming components of underwriting, uh, understanding a customer's risk, understanding the underwriting guidelines, reading through risks is something that humans have traditionally done, but they won't be able to. Uh, they'll still be able to do it, but we won't be able to let them do it because the, the timeline for submission review needs to be that much dramatically faster. What we're going to be seeing is that humans are presented with those initial points of value extracted by a machine saying, you know, here are the 10 things that you need to pay attention to. Now, you've got, let's say, a thousand submissions that have landed in your underwriting workbench inbox today. Here are the 10 you can bind immediately, you know, right now. Uh, and here's why. And the underwriter might say, you know, yes, I agree with that. Tick, 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 tick. You know, that means that, you know, what might take a day for an underwriter to, to meet their target on today in terms of premium written might take them between you know, 9 o'clock and 9.15 in the morning. Uh, that means that the, the more complex risks, the things that machines might say, this is on the line and here's why, there's nuance to this and this is where you might need to go and send a risk control team out to go and look at this risk to understand if it's presented correctly or there's a discrepancy somewhere between what's written and what I can see from space, from you know aerial imagery on this building. A human needs to go and validate that to make sure that this discrepancy is, is either not real or that there's more detail to it than's being presented here you're going to start seeing humans being the arbitrator on information that might be less clear-cut between, you know, you can bind or you can't bind. And I think that's extremely healthy and valuable because human decision-making is something that I think will still take quite some time to, to replicate in a machine. Getting to the point where you identify which decision needs human arbitration will be that much faster and you know, to the point we made uh, before, the the key thing is here that companies that choose not to do that are going to start missing out on business. And that's the sentinel that I've been telling people to watch for. If you have a portfolio that's performed very well previously, that you know has you've been writing the business that you want to write, and it's it's very well shaped, and your loss ratio is good. If you find yourself getting to broker submissions two to three days after they come in, and you know when you go to communicate with a broker and say we can bind this, they say sorry, you know somebody already has bound that. That's a sign that another carrier is starting to move in on your turf and using this technology. And that's where all of this automation becomes super important. The reason that pretty much every carrier and broker on earth right now is looking at this closely you know, on, on the usual bell curve is because they're, they're healthily afraid of what happens if this is done to them, not what happens if they do it themselves. It's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about, that, about it that way, but that's how they are thinking about it for sure. It's it's interesting, right? This is probably the one of the first generations of technology where the speed that you have, the time that you have to actually take advantage of it, uh, or the risk if you don't take advantage of it, becomes existential. And I don't think that the insurance industry, even in the last, let's call it 40 to 50 years of digitization, has actually experienced something like this, where the timeline to onboard yourself to it has been so short. Uh, and, you know, frankly, that's why, you know, we're looking very carefully at investing in this space. Uh, insurance carriers, the insurance industry is not renowned for being able to do this kind of thing very quickly. Insurtechs, you know, have a reputation of being able to do it. You know, there will be a, a survivorship bias towards the ones that do it successfully. I, I do believe that this is something that's going to be done very well by insurtechs that carriers can partner with 
And we're certainly already seeing that. You know, there's a lot of very early movers that are creating some very impressive capabilities uh, that, uh, you know, while the carriers are essentially still talking about the regulatory impact or the people impact, you know, which are very important things, but just knuckling down doing it and showing what's possible, this is this is generally where it comes in from the outside. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was going to ask one more question, but honestly, Alex, I think that is a fantastic stopping point. Um, you really hit the nail on the head there. So I'm going to wrap us up. This has been another episode of Unstructured Lock. Unlocked. Our guest today has been Alex Taylor, uh, head of emerging technologies at QBE Ventures. And uh, my head is full right now, Alex. Thank you so much. <laughs> I've, I've achieved my goal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, folks. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.